My learning objectives for this talk are to discuss practical approaches to doing research projects in mission settings, to consider ethical and missional implications of conducting medical research, and to identify resources that can help you start a research program. How many of you are based in a country other than the United States? Spend most of your time. Just a couple of you. How many of you are, how many of you have done biomedical research of any type? All right. Wow. Fantastic. How many of you done it, have done it in a mission setting or an overtly Christian setting? A couple, a few. Excellent. Excellent. So we have people here who are experts, topic experts in this topic. And they are going to be able to speak to the issues we're talking about here today. And in some ways, we're just going to scratch the surface, but that's fine. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start with a little uh, case study. Then I'm going to um, uh, go through some background and sort of the structural thematic issues. And then I want to spend at least half the time talking through some examples of people who've done biomedical research. And I want to see what themes we all can draw out of those stories I'm going to tell you about ways to do this. So my case story, that's me in 1988. I am your case story today. And I looked a little different then. And uh, my wife and I, I was fresh out of medical residency. And my wife and I moved to Liberia and we started working at a place called Elwa Hospital. And I was uh, working on the medical wards and we began to see chloroquine-resistant malaria. Now, at that time, chloroquine cured malaria, and, but then it, all of a sudden it wasn't working anymore. And I thought, gee, what can I do right here in my little hospital's lab to develop a test? Ooh. Is that better, I wonder? Any better? To develop a test to diagnose chloroquine resistance versus sensitivity. And I started in on a little project there in the lab, and that was my first experience with biomedical research. And since then, I've been fortunate to be involved in other projects with other people and to really be excited about this. Now, what is biomedical research? Well, here's how the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines it. Studies designed to increase the scientific base of information about health and disease and studies intended to evaluate the safety, effectiveness, or usefulness of a medical product, procedure, or intervention. So I want to highlight a few words there. First, biomedical research involves studies. It's the use of the scientific method. Uh, it is uh, studies about health and disease. So interestingly, you could be studying not disease, which is what I've mainly done, but you could be studying health and how to keep people healthy. And uh, it may be simply descriptive or it may involve an intervention. And so some things just to highlight. Now, one of the key questions we have to think about today, uh, and that I thought about in Liberia in 1988, was do missions and research actually go together? And people tend to have a rather strong view on this. Some people feel that they're like oil and water. They really don't mix and they really should not mix. And other people think they're more like peanut butter and jelly and that, you know, they're perfect together. And so which way is it? You know, uh, how does this go? And the people who are more on the oil and water side of this equation, this is what they're concerned about. They say that research brings us focus on science, but that missions is about faith. 
and so that there's going to be an inevitable tension or conflict there. They say that there are ethical horror stories of the past about research, and that's absolutely true, actually, and that to introduce the concept of research is to introduce all sorts of ethical conundrums and difficulties to the work of a mission healthcare institution, and that the perception of the community and the staff may be that you're starting to experiment on people. What could be worse if you're trying to reach people with the gospel? And finally, that there's mission creep and that we would become about research instead of becoming about Jesus. So these are reasons why maybe, hi Dick, I'm talking about why missions and research might not fit together. And I'm saying these are the reasons they give, and Dick is shaking his head. So, uh, But then those who think they're like peanut butter and jelly and that they go together beautifully would say that actually research leads to improved patient care and that Research leads to progress against disease, which is a huge blessing to the people suffering from that disease. And that the perceptions of the community and the staff, if it's done right, will actually be hugely positive about research, not negative. And that research might actually be a profound way of demonstrating the gospel of Christ. So uh, um, two very different views. Now, at the heart of these conflicting views about biomedical research is conflicting views of what medical missions is really all about. And so I have to spend just a minute talking about is medicine actually missional? And, you know, if missions begins and ends with church planting, if that's all missions is, then biomedical research really has no place. And, in fact, medical missions may or may not have a place. You know, uh, if, if, uh, if the purpose of medical missions is only sort of as a hook or a sales device to catch people's attention, meet their felt needs so that we can then convert them, then perhaps biomedical research has no place in missions. But the other view of this would be to say that, um, as David Thompson, who's not in the room, David Thompson uh, famously has said Jesus was more than a mouth. He said, you know, uh, we know Jesus healed people. And he actually healed people without strings attached. And why did he do that? He healed people because it was this incredibly dramatic and profound illustration of God's grace. It was the kingdom of God all of a sudden visible to people where they were. And... uh, uh, That's the way it is with medical missions today. People who are uh, working in medical mission settings, taking care of patients, they're healing people without strings attached. They're showing God's grace in a hugely profound way. And they're impacting not only that person, but their communities uh, with a vision of what the kingdom of God is about. And if that's your idea of medical missions, then research can fit right into the heart of it. There's a couple of conclusions, though, to draw from that way of thinking. And in a a faith-based context, I think we could say that research should aim to make progress against disease, that it should demonstrate love, grace, and mercy in action, that the research itself is a taste of God's kingdom to people. It's not something extra or be outside of that, that that it will emphasize the worth of individuals, Uh, who are involved in all aspects of the research and they'll be committed to the community 
that it's taking place in. Now, these things are especially important because medical missions is under scrutiny, increasing scrutiny in our world, you know, and it's coming from several directions. Uh, one is that, that um, Western-style medicine is linked in some parts of the developing world to colonialism. And there's the concept, perhaps mistaken, but there's the concept that if you're in missionary healthcare, that you're a colonialist. There's also a perception that uh, medical missionaries, healthcare missionaries, use this as a tool for evangelism, that we have a hidden agenda, and that therefore we can't really be providing the best quality health care. Now, that's not what I think, but it, it's important to think through that and to think, well, could that really be true? In fact, medical healthcare, uh, missionary health care people give better health care than most of the alternatives where they are. But these questions are being asked by people in our world and by people in the countries where we work. And so uh, medical research actually provides biomedical research one of, is one way to start to address these issues and to, to show that, in fact, often the opposite is true. Now, I'm going to go on to, the, to uh, several uh, uh, case examples of biomedical research in mission settings. And uh, I hope through this that some themes will emerge that we can talk about. So the first case I want to tell you about is Dennis Burkett. How many people have heard of Dennis Burkett? Most people in the room have heard of Dennis Burkett. This is... Uh, in some ways, the poster child of biomedical research for a missionary. So Dennis was Irish. Uh, he grew up in rural Ireland, and uh, his father was a county surveyor and ornithologist. And it's interesting to know about his father that he was an avid bird watcher, but also a scientific one, and that at that time, the technology of banding, putting bands on the legs of birds so you could track them had just been developed. And his father would track birds all around that region of Ireland. And so uh, Dennis was a bright child. He grew up. He did well. He went to Trinity College Dublin, and he became a Christian in university. And it was around that conversion experience of Dennis's that he decided to go into medicine, and he felt a call to missionary medicine. And uh, so he trained as a surgeon, and in 1946, he was posted to Uganda with the British Colonial Service, and he began to work as a surgeon. And very early on in his experience, he began jotting down notes and keeping track of patients. He was interested in hydrocele's. He saw a bunch of patients with those. He started to work on the issue of an artificial limb. Uh, and could they locally manufacture a cheap artificial limb for people who are having amputations? And so he had a curious mind. And, and uh, in 1957, he cared for a child with swellings in the angles of the jaw. And he wrote in his... Yeah, subsequently, that about two weeks later, I looked out the window and saw another child with a swollen face and began to investigate these jaw tumors. He thought, this is weird. A couple of kids in a couple of weeks with these jaw tumors. And so he visited the medical records department of his institution, and he started looking through the records. And he found out that these jaw tumors were fairly common and were often associated with other tumors at unusual sites in children in Uganda. And he concluded that these apparently different childhood cancers were all manifestations of a single, hitherto unrecognized tumor complex. And he wrote about this, the record review he had done, and he published a journal, uh, published an article in the British Medical uh, um, 
journals called a sarcoma involving the jaws of African children. Now, on the basis of that, he applied for and got a grant from the British government for the grand sum of 25 pounds. And uh, with that money, he uh, kind of coalesced a little team around him in Uganda of people who he got interested in this. And he ended up driving around much of eastern and central Africa and trying to gather geographical data about childhood tumors. And it's fascinating because he was kind of replicating what his father did with the birds in Ireland. He was driving around Africa getting geographical data. And he that's him in that picture with those push pins on a map of Africa. And he described what he called a lymphoma belt across Central Africa where this unusual, turns out not so unusual, childhood cancer was happening. And he noticed that it only happened in places where the temperature never dropped below 65 degrees, ever. And he concluded from that that he thought there was some environmental factor that was causing, or perhaps infectious factor, that was causing this childhood tumor. So he went and presented his data at a meeting, a medical meeting in London. And while he was there, after he gave his talk, a virologist named Epstein came up to him afterwards and said, I'm really interested in this. Could I get some tumor samples from you? So Burkett sent some tumor samples to Epstein. And Epstein and his partner, whose name was Barr, uh, found a virus in the tumors. And it's, we call it the Epstein-Barr virus. And um, this was the first virus ever to be found in a cancer and was the first demonstration that an infection could cause cancer. And it revolutionized a couple of fields. It revolutionized virology. It revolutionized cancer medicine and cancer biology. And Dennis Burkett was at the center of this. He subsequently partnered with Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York to introduce chemotherapy. And today, what we call Burkett's lymphoma is considered a curable cancer of childhood. And so here's a, a Ugandan child with Burkitt's lymphoma before and after treatment. Now, my next uh, case story I want to tell you is a guy named Tom Thatcher. How many of you have heard of Tom Thatcher? A couple of you. All right. But obviously, this is not someone known like Dennis Burkitt. Tom um, uh, was led to missions as a student at the University of Utah. And it was because of his uh, calling to missions that he decided to go to medical school. And originally, he thought he was going to be a neurosurgeon. But as he was going through medical school, he was struck that the big need around the world in the developing world wasn't for neurosurgery. It was for community health. And so he went into family practice, wanting to be relevant and to make an impact in the developing world. And he and his wife, Rosie, who's in that picture there, moved in 1988 to Nigeria where they were assigned to do community health evangelism at a rural so-called cottage hospital in rural Nigeria. And while he was working in this cottage hospital, Tom began to collect data. It was just something that interested him. And he began to make notes about malnourished child and collect information about growth curves and so forth. Three years later, in 1991, he moved to Jos, which is a big city in Nigeria in the middle of the country, and uh, uh, he was given a slightly different focus, he and his wife, to, 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 to work in missions using profession as a platform for ministry with families and in marriages. 
They started a family life program. But he was looking for work in medicine, and so he ended up at Juth, Joss University Teaching Hospital. That's a picture of the entranceway to Juth. And he walked in and said, I'm a family practice doctor. Can you use me? And they said, funny, we're thinking of starting a family practice residency. You're the program director. (laughs) Make it happen. So Tom said, okay. And they started off with two residents in their first year. And he started to put this together. And about the second year, he found out that in the British system they worked in, that his residents would have to do a dissertation before they could finish. And he said, whoa, that means research. And so he got it started to study, and he ended up teaching a class at Juth about research methods and statistics. Now, he was working in his clinic. They had a family practice clinic, and he started taking care of a lot of kids with rickets. And there's a photograph of rickets. Uh, you know, this is a deformity of the long bones, typically in the legs. And he was really puzzled by this because the teaching was that rickets was a disease of vitamin D deficiency. Now, of course, you get vitamin D by being out in sunlight, right? You medical people know that. And so the teaching was that rickets did not happen in the tropics because there's lots of sunlight in the tropics, and kids are running around outside. So you can't be vitamin D deficient in the tropics. But here's all these kids with rickets in Joss, and he was puzzled by that. And they would give them vitamin D to treat them, and not much happened. So... Tom was really curious about that, and he talked to a Nigerian colleague who was also a Jew, a pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, yeah, that bugs me too, and in fact, I've been collecting little vials of blood from these kids. I've got them in a freezer. Do you know anyone who could help us figure out about this vitamin D thing? And so Tom said, yeah, you know, I've got a friend back in Utah named Phil Fisher, who's a pediatrician. He might be able to help us. And so next time Tom went home, he took those vials of blood on the plane with him. And he brought them home, and he gave them to Phil, and they ran vitamin D levels, and they figured out all these Nigerian kids with rickets had normal vitamin D levels. And it wasn't a problem with vitamin D deficiency. Well, that's pretty interesting. And so they applied for and got a small research grant. And on the basis of that, they did a a prospective study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And there it is. And they showed that actually in this population, it's calcium deficiency that causes rickets. Brand new information. And this has turned into a whole small research industry in in rickets and calcium deficiency around the developing world. That's been a story over the last 25 years. Now, Tom found that in his ministry at Juth, that his standing and his circle of influence expanded because of these research projects that he got his residents involved in. And it wasn't only Ricketts. Ricketts is the thing he's probably become most well-known for in research circles. But they did research on post-traumatic stress disorder after the uh, uh, interfaith riots that occurred in in Joss. He did research, he and his residents, in many other areas. His residency expanded so they had... I think it was 14 residents a year instead of two uh, after a decade. He uh, found he was mentoring a lot of people, and he continued at Juth for many years. And if you talk to Tom about research and how he got into it and the effect it had, he would tell you, it fell into my lap, it opened doors for me as a missionary, it used my strengths, I enjoyed it, and it expanded my circle of influence for God's kingdom. 
Next um, case example I want to give you is Dr. Russ White. How many people here know or heard of Dr. Russ White? So somewhere in the middle. Okay. Russ is a thoracic surgeon. He was born in East Africa to missionary parents, and he felt a call to missionary medicine as a young child. He went to medical school. He also got a master's in public health while he was in his training, which gave him a background in things like study design and statistics and gave him a view, a more broad overview, a non-surgical view, I might say, of health. And he was interested in medical education. While he was a med student, he rotated to Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. And he, on the basis of his experience there, he decided to become a thoracic surgeon. Why? Because there were a lot of people there with esophagus cancer. And he wanted to be able to help them. So he went and did a whole surgical residency and two years of thoracic surgery training beyond. And then he went to Tenwick. He and his wife, Beth. And he found that he was unable to help about 90% of the esophagus cancer patients there because they came with disease that was too advanced, too late, really, to operate on. And this is a picture of one of his patients here. This person in the wheelchair looks like the oldest person in the picture, but in fact, she's the youngest. She's the daughter of these two people. And like many esophagus cancer patients at Tenwick, she was fairly young and uh, severely malnourished and close to death from her disease. So Russ partnered with a gastroenterologist, who was me, actually. And, um, this, and in 1999, we introduced self-expanding esophageal stents to use in his hospital in Kenya. And at the time, it seemed like a crazy idea, because we're talking about the developing world. And in a self-expandable uh, um, metal stent for the esophagus, at that time, cost about $1,500. And so uh, when I said I was, we were going to take stents to Kenya to put in esophagus cancer patients to palliate their symptoms, uh, Americans I knew would look at me like I was crazy. Like, how inappropriate is that? You should be using that money to buy measles vaccines or something, but not, not stents for esophagus cancer. But that's what we did. And uh, the Lord worked uh, in, that, in that situation in a marvelous way, provided the stents, and then provided a pathway for continued supply of stents and a sustainable supply. And Russ began to put stents in people with esophagus cancer who couldn't be operated to palliate their symptoms. Now, people with esophagus cancer in the developing world, it's a miserable and horrible disease because they either starve to death because they can't get food down anymore, or they drown in their own saliva and they die of, of aspiration. So it's a horrendous disease. And what we found putting these stents in people in Kenya in this hospital is that, is that this simple palliative intervention completely changed the perspective of the hospital staff and the hospital and the community about this disease, which is one of the commonest diseases in that area. I mean, everyone knows someone who's died of esophagus cancer in that part of Kenya. For they, they became, once you showed that you could actually palliate this disease, people could be comfortable who had this disease and could eat and swallow, um, the staff all of a sudden didn't mind seeing someone with esophagus cancer. And the community thought, there's something that could be done for me. And so there was a 180 revolution in how the community thought about this. Now, Russ was interested in collecting data. And you see that sign in the upper right there. He's with um, David Nyatich and David Rono, who were his endoscopy assistants. Russ is in the middle. It says, endoscopy research room. 
And they have log books and data forms, and he started collecting data on everything that was done around this. So he partnered with some stent manufacturers to have a sustainable approach. A few years ago, he published the world's largest series of esophageal stent placement for esophageal cancer uh, in uh, Lancet Oncology. And along the way, over the years, he's greatly expanded the team there. So now this is a picture taken about three or four years ago of the esophagus cancer research team at Tenwick Hospital. And he's had a number of outside partners. I mean, he's a surgeon. He's doing his thing there. But he partners with me. He partners now with a team of people at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda. He's got some partners at Hopkins and some partners in France and trying to make progress with this problem. Along the way, he's had to build human capacity. This is a photo of Bernard Maritime, who is a clinical officer at, at the hospital there and came to where I live, Rochester, Minnesota, to, to do a one-year fellowship to become a cytopathologist to help with some community-based screening studies we started. And um, uh, Bernard, he arrived in August. Now, in September, he emailed friends in Kenya, please pray for me, it is desperately cold here. And... <laughs> But he adjusted, and this is a picture of him in February snowblowing my driveway in Rochester. Um, so he built human capacity. Many of his residents have been involved in this research. Uh, he started an esophageal cancer research fellowship. That's a picture of Mike Machiro, who was our first fellow. And along the way, this team has learned a lot about the underlying causes of esophagus cancer in this region. We've, we know about the precursor lesion now in the esophagus, which is asymptomatic, and we know how to find it. And uh, right now there's a study going on there showing that at proof of principle we can prevent esophagus cancer in that region of, ten, of uh, Kenya. Really exciting stuff for me as a gastroenterologist. Now, last example I'm going to give you is Debbie Coates. Anyone here know Debbie Coates? Nobody. Okay. So Debbie is – that. Doesn't surprise me. Debbie is a nurse practitioner. She works in rural Cambodia, and her background and her training were in community development. And when she and her husband, John, went to Cambodia, their goal was to help with community development projects. And she, he works in a number of areas, uh, digging wells, agriculture, education. Debbie started a clinic in the village of Prey Vang, way out in an area where to this day there is no electricity. Uh, we're talking rural Cambodia, very limited resources. It's a government clinic that she staffs. And early on, she became convinced she was seeing a lot of nutritional deficiencies in her patients. And, you know, it's tough for Debbie because her only diagnostic tool is her stethoscope. That's about it. So, you know, the ability to prove a diagnosis can be hard. But she became convinced she was seeing a lot of nutritional def uh, deficits and she also became convinced that a lot of the childhood death, infant death in her area, was due to beriberi, which is uh, thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency. And so um, she decided to try and figure that out. She has a curious mind, and she wanted to see what she could learn. And so she partnered with an American nursing colleague, and they went around the communities in that region and did what's called a verbal autopsy study. They talked to mothers whose infants had died, and they asked what happened, what did, your, what, what, did, what did your child look like? What, they asked questions. And they came to, through this process to the conclusion that this might be, beriberi might be a leading cause of preventable death in infants in their region of Cambodia. And she was at a CMDA, CME meeting, and she talked to, uh, uh, to some 
doctors she knew there and said, what do you think about this problem? And the result was that some time later, there's Phil Fisher in her clinic in Prey Ving examining one of these ch- children saying, gee, could this actually be very, very, very? And so a research team came together around Debbie, a lot of people from Mayo Clinic actually, to ask, well, is it beriberi you're seeing and what could we do? And um, um, the committee decided that she ought to do a prospective study. And Debbie said, yeah, I'd like to. And so she started going to Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia, and getting to know the people on the National Medical Ethics Committee would have to approve a project. And so she ended up getting to know a lot of people at the university in the city, exactly opposite of where she was originally oriented, which was in the village. And it got to know a bunch of Cambodian medical students there who became involved in the project. And this is a project that is ongoing. But what she's established so far is that this is probably a cause of death in about 10% of the uh, uh, infants there in that area. It's not 90% as she had initially thought, but it's about 10%. And why we're starting to learn about why this is a rice polishing machine here at the bottom. And this is part of the problem where she lives and for this disease. And she's moving into thinking about preventing this illness. So what does you think? What do you think? As I've told you about Dennis Burkett and Tom Thatcher and Russ White and Debbie Coates, any themes emerging about medical research that have struck you? Curiosity. Curiosity. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you start off, you say to people, what do you need in order to do a research project? And people think, I need a PhD, or I need a huge research grant, or I need, you know, uh, something else. No, that's absolutely right. Curiosity is actually probably the one essential component for doing a research project. Uh, Anything else? It started with observation, not a preconceived agenda of what I want to do in that area. Like, they teach the kids, you know, that it's, Yeah, beautiful. So the comment for those who maybe didn't hear, start with observation, not a preconceived idea. And you're so right. Uh, Biomedical research is often just noticing and observing something and being a little curious about why and and not just sort of the received ideas about why. Absolutely. Ron? Fantastic. The locals have a lot of information to help you with your ideas. Yes. Yes. And yes. Partners with locals and? Yes, absolutely. Partnership in the community, right? It's not a question of this outsider coming in and doing something to these people necessarily. Yes. Yes, thank you. Response to a problem or a need. And so, in fact, all these people took on issues that seemed like common problems in the environment they were in. They weren't studying some rare thing that occurred once a decade where they were, right? Maybe back in the north it's once a decade Burkitt's lymphoma happens. But in Uganda he realized, hey, this is all around me. So absolutely. And it was response to that that they acted. Yes. Other observations? Yeah. Absolutely. So if you have a question, people in high places will help you. And that's true. Everyone I've told you about here today, they didn't do it all themselves. They got partners involved who were eager to help them. 
You're absolutely right. And in fact, it turns out any decent biomedical research program over time inevitably involves partnerships and teams because nobody does everything, right? Right, absolutely. But the missions person has that key pivotal role that they're there and they see the problem and they are the stimulus, yeah. Other observations, yeah. Yes, fantastic. Eventually moved to prevention. In the case of Burkitt, curing the cancer. Still no prevention there that I'm aware of. But in the case of Russ White, what can we do to prevent this cancer to begin with in our area? Debbie Coates, same story. You know, how can we prevent? She's working on that now. I didn't give you all the details. How can we prevent beriberi to start with where I live? Absolutely. So progress against disease. Yeah, huge progress actually in one lifetime for many of these things. You guys are good. I think you got my whole list. Yes, sir. Uh, you, you mentioned for most of either it broadened their base locally or internationally for their ministry to be at least known, if not uh, felt, by the other researchers or clinicians. Yeah, beautiful. So thank you. So it broadened their base nationally and maybe even internationally for, for, and gave them more of a platform for what they were about as a missionary. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, I would say all of these people would tell you it was a win-win in terms of not only their medical work, but their mission work. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you've got everything on my list. So the themes that emerged for me, curiosity, they were curious, which is the one essential component of doing research, I think. And they managed to find some time. We didn't actually talk about that, and I didn't stress it, but they all found a little time to think and reflect and start collecting some information. Um, they just studied locally relevant problems. They started simply with what they had, usually with some retrospective analysis of what had happened. They linked to outside partners who were, and found out that outside people were actually quite interested in getting involved. They found some funding as it went along. And for most of them, it just kind of happened pretty easily because they were dealing with what turned out to be a serious health issue and that people would, would help them with that. And they all had organizational and community engagement. Now, benefits for the missionary, all these people would tell you it expanded their relationships with peers and with their local community and uh, with the health infrastructure in their nation, many of them. They would all say to you, I enjoy biomedical research. They were solving locally relevant problems. Biomedical research often increases job satisfaction for missionaries who do it, and it may even be a way of helping to avoid burnout in medical missions. Benefits, what about benefits for the healthcare institution? Do we have any administrators here today? Too bad. Okay, well, I think there's a number of benefits for the institutions, that have the missions institutions that do this. They see better patient care. They see more teamwork in their institution. Uh, often this ties into residency programs very well because the residents need to do a research project. And so there's a synergy there. Relationships in new places, not only for the, for the individuals doing this work, but for the institution. Their institution becomes known even more so for excellence in their region and in their nation and increased standing in the community and the country. So... Um, there's more stuff I could talk about. We have about 20 minutes here, but I thought I would just stop and I can talk a little more about research culture, research ethics, but any comments or questions or things you would like to discuss at this point?
Yeah. So it's a question about Dennis Burkett and how did the partnership with the chemotherapy people go? And it's a great question, and I don't know all the answers about that. My um, understanding is that it was the people at Sloan Kettering who proposed the combinations of drugs and did some of the initial trials and actually did them in Africa with Burkett and with the other people who came along after him because he was getting pretty further, far along in his career by then. Um, I don't, it's not the case that Burkett was a chemotherapist himself or that he kind of came up with, with the things to do. I don't know a lot of the details about that. I, maybe someone else here does. Yeah. Great question. So here's a question about should missionaries get involved with secular institutions doing research studies? For instance, a survey that's being brought is now by is this by a national uh, health organization or an international one? WHO coming and saying we'd like your help with this. What does the audience think? We have people here who've encountered this. Ron, you may have encountered this. Others. Any people want to speak to that question? Ron, stand up and just speak a little louder so everyone can hear you. Thanks. So, so you're saying, yes, it's fine to partner with some secular groups around doing a research project or filling out a questionnaire. Mike, you have a comment about it. Mike Soderling, stand up and... Uh Were you here when we started, Mike? I was not. Okay. Yeah, we, I talked about that. But I said, I said, is research and missions, are they oil and water or are they peanut butter and jelly? And I 
tried to make the case they're peanut butter and jelly. But yes. So, and now what's your thought about that? You asked the question. I think a lot of this has to do with what your conception is of really what you're doing. As I said, if medicine is a hook or tool or, if you like, sales ploy to to evangelize people, and that's really what I'm doing, then probably this stuff is extraneous. If it's I'm here to be a living uh, illustration of God's kingdom, then I think there's nothing better than to do this and to partner with secular people because that's who you want to impact after all is secular people and to bring your national partners along with you. I'm going to show you the next slide here I have because it bears on this. I want to talk a little bit about research culture. And if you're going to do research in a mission setting, what's the culture of that? And how does that work? It's very different than patient care. And it will address this question, I think, a little bit. So... um, Research teams are very different than clinical care teams. A research care team fosters curiosity and innovation, whereas a clinical team is working off algorithms usually. You know, we've got problem A, here's what we do, here's the decision point, give this drug, go on to the next thing. Research is like clean slate. What are we thinking? Where are we going to go? What's our ideas? We slow way down, talk about it back and forth. You build a team that's very different. A clinical team is very hierarchical, right? There's, the, there's a clear chain of command and, and tasks. A research team is much more horizontal, okay? The doctor and the nurse and the study coordinator and the clerk, much more horizontal relationship because you're working as a team. That can be very healthy in a mission hospital setting to have that more horizontal collaborative relationship. Um, it turns out also you need partners in the community that are part of that team, and even nationally you need partners on the ethics committee in the capital. And you can either say, what a drag and what a problem and distraction, or you can say, what an opportunity as a Christian healthcare person to get involved in that milieu and that group and be light and salt there. You know, So a couple of different ways of looking at it. Um, and then... Um, there's issues in research culture about learning research methods. When you're taking care of patients, you, in many ways, are doing the patient a favor. They come to you with a need, you address it. When you're doing prospective studies, you're looking for subjects to be in your, in your study. They are doing you a favor by enrolling in your study. So it completely flips on its head the usual motivation of doctor and patient. And... Uh, That can also be very healthy in a mission hospital setting, changing the whole way people think about, on the hospital team, how do we think about these patients? They're actually doing us a favor. That's pretty radical. But it's it's sort of a kingdom way to think. So, um, and then the research culture, you commit very strongly to the health of participants. I mean, where I work, my patients have the, page operator's number to call me if there's a problem. The subjects in my research studies have my cell phone, okay? So, you know, you have a higher level of commitment to research subjects, and that pertains in a research setting, in mission settings also, and it turns out that's a very positive kingdom thing too. So um, aspects of research culture, I think, maybe speak to the question that you're asking.
Okay, other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. How does it work out for me? So I am not a long-term missionary. I lived in Liberia for about a year, and then I've uh, worked and partnered in a number of places. Uh, That hospital in Kenya, I'm usually at once or twice a year at this point. I no longer do any patient care. I go, they're really sort of site visits, and how's the research going, and can you help with, I help with a new technique or something. And partners from the NCI are there, sometimes together, sometimes other times. for me, it's just a huge blessing in my life. I mean, uh, uh, it's just I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be involved. And I realize that I can bring my own little piece. You know, I have something I can help with. And sometimes the main way I can help is to connect somebody to somebody else and say, let's find somebody who knows about this aspect who can help us with this problem. Um, sometimes I can help with equipment. Sometimes I can help with finding funding uh, sources for research because my partners overseas are way too busy to think about writing grants. So I'm, I can help with that, you know. So I do what I can to help us being part of the team. And I think that kind of answers the question, don't let it interfere with your kingdom calling. Partners with people, like I teach at a university too. Could you stand up and just let, so everyone can hear you speak? I teach at a university too, and for me it's the same sort of blessing to be able to make mm. Absolutely, and I think increasingly in the developing world, it opens doors nationally for people who do this sort of work. Other comments? Yes, sir. You're one of the ones who raised your hand that you were doing this sort of thing, so speak up and give us your comment. Uh, not recently, but one comment I was just thinking that Mission Hospitals may be able to do, which is also part of the research, is implementation research. I mean, a lot uh-huh. of countries are looking for models how to you know, scale it up, and I think you're actually delivering care and providing very useful research information for, for the national, actually for the whole country. Yes, that's beautiful comment about implementation research. So a group in, in Madagascar recently, they just collected data about what they were doing and changes in the villages they worked in around infant mortality and malaria rates in children, uh, you know, and uh, growth curves in children and showed before and after changes from a community health program. They're just telling the world, telling their country and the world, here's how to do it. I agree with you. That's huge. And especially for even immunization because the countries, they want to know what is the ultimate impact if you want to introduce this vaccine. So, so this is the type of data. So sometimes WHO will come to you and ask for that information or Gavi will come to you. And I think that, that's uh, golden up. And so much of it is just the ability to collect some information. So, for instance, I have a friend in Cameroon who's not here who has started a cancer registry at his hospital. Why? Because people were coming to him asking. And since he started it six months ago, he's found two or three new partners. Oh, you have a cancer registry. Wow. You know, we want you to partner with us to figure some stuff out. So, yeah, it's not rocket science, a lot of this. It's just, yeah. Yes, yes. Can you speak to IRB approval? Yeah. IRB and coordinating with countries they have it, and what do we do with yeah, so um, I'm happy to speak to that. I have a couple of slides here about research ethics, but it's, 
it's really t- a whole subject in and of itself. I'm not going to do a deep dive in today in the ten minutes we have left. But um, the specific question you have is about IRB or institutional review boards and ethics approval for research. So there are several ways to go about this for a mission organization. If the mission organization has not done research in the past uh, and has no sort of track record in this, they're um, going to start generally with some very simple retrospective studies that don't really require ethics approval in their setting. For instance, going back and looking through medical records and writing up, you know, the last 10 cases of sigmoid volvulus we had. I'm thinking of a real example. And, and uh, putting a poster about it at the National Surgical Society meeting from the Mission Hospital. That, in that setting, does not require IRB approval. Here it would. There it doesn't really because it's retrospective. There's no impact on any patient. Um, moving beyond that, that sort of institution would take the protocol to the National Ethics Committee or National IRB, which often exists in many developing countries, and ask for approval. And it's often a tedious process. But it's also, again, it all depends on your view. It also is a way to expand your network and get to know people in new places, interesting people who are often leaders in healthcare in the country you're in, uh, and start to work with them. And so, um, depending on your perspective, that's a positive or negative experience. I, in, in Tenwick Hospital, where Russ White works, every protocol is now approved both by the hospital's IRB. Hospital has an institutional review board composed of a doctor or two, an administrator or two, a nurse or two, and some people from the surrounding community who are not medical who come in and are also part of this committee. So every protocol is approved by that committee and by the National Ethics Committee because the hospital is very concerned to be above board. And so they do both approvals for every prospective study. And, you know, there are some studies they just say no to. And they say, you know, too much risk involved in this or too difficult for us to carry out, we're just going to pass on that one. That's fine. You, know, it all, nothing you, want, you don't want to do anything that's going to conflict with your mission of being salt and light and being an outpost of God's kingdom there where you are. Um, so I think there's different pro- pathways. Debbie Coates, everything's through the National IRB because her mission has no infrastructure. There's no hospital. There, there's no infrastructure that would allow creation of their own IRB. So, but I do think sooner or later, if you do prospective work, you have to have ethics approval. But that, to me, is an opportunity. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. The question is, I think, is what about medical research as tent-making? Is it an entry into a closed country like education might be? I think that's a great idea. I've never heard anyone put it that way. I think you should make it happen, yeah. Um, but, but, uh, but I see some hands over here. But um, I, I think it's absolutely a pathway, yeah. But, and, and the case examples that are coming to my mind about this are people who are perhaps not at the beginning of their career, but a little further along. 
And may, but maybe some people will have examples in the room of people who did it even at the beginning of their career. Yeah, Ron. That's a good point. So I think of a friend of mine recently who's now working in a closed country, and the entree was they wanted to know how to start a medical journal. And he's been on review boards of medical journals and been an editor, and he knows how to do it. So this was the entree for him. Now, that's not exactly research, but it's an academic aspect. Yes. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Very interesting. Other hands, yes. So I was wondering, do you feel like um, medical research is um, opposed at all, or um, or does it play well with the community engagement approaches, um, like how, especially overseas? Because it sounds like a lot of the things that have been done um, require participation from outside sources and a lot of external stuff. Um, what about building up? Fantastic question. So what about research in the setting of a community engagement initiative? Yeah, thank you for asking that because I didn't stress it all that much. But I think that, uh, again, it's the peanut butter and jelly side of it. I think that it's very positive if it's done in the way it should be done, which is to engage the community. And, you know, often in some of these settings you have a rather fatalistic community that says things have always been this way and they will all continue to be that way. And to be able to introduce change is a huge thing, right, but also a difficult thing. And just the simple business of collecting information about it can change perceptions. And um, collecting information usually involves getting the community involved in collecting that information, right, having a, a strategy, asking the community what information matters to them, and then um, – figuring out a way to collect the information and define what you and I would say define the problem. Now, what could we possibly do about this? You know, the whole thing, it's really research, but you don't have to call it that. The whole process, it can be community-driven. And uh, for some forms of research, like deciding how to decrease the malaria rate in children or improve the growth curves of children in a community or a region, you don't need IRB approval for that. It's implementation of things that are already known uh, but taking a data collection approach to it and building a team that involves the community instead of coming in and saying, I'm the white or yellow Western doctor and I know what to do, so here's how to do it. I mean, you know, the research approach is a much better approach and more is going to build a community engagement 
I would think, in a great way. But I'll let others comment on that. Other comments on community engagement and research? Yes. Well, I think it's probably time for us to stop, but I want to thank you all. You are a fantastic audience, great engagement, great enthusiasm, and I hope there will be more about this at future conferences like this, and you guys can get up and tell us about what you're doing. So thank you.